You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, and we're going to be looking together at chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, and we'll be reading together verses 13 through 38. You'll find this on page 929 of the Pew Bible, if you have one. Hopefully there's enough. Acts chapter 20, verses 13 through 38. Hear the word of God. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. 
You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Forgive me. Well, Paul and his companions and the believers in Troas had gathered on the first day of the week, as you remember. They had enjoyed the service of corporate worship in which Paul preached for a long time. It was an evening service to accommodate the slaves who had already worked all day long. And the sermon, which was an exposition of gospel truth, extended all the way until midnight. The things he had to say were of the greatest weight and importance, as you can imagine. And a young man, Eutychus by name, was sitting by an open window, perhaps, we think, to get some fresh air. And the late hour and the stuffy room and the ambient light and the very long sermon conspired against him. And Eutychus fell asleep, and he fell three stories, and Luke, the physician, tells us that he was taken up dead. It must have been a shocking interruption to an already extended service, but Paul went down and took him in his arms and declared that his life was in him. And it was a miraculous resuscitation of a dead boy by the power of Jesus Christ. And this miracle, we believe, was intended by God to confirm the gospel preached by the Apostle Paul. Raising Eutychus, in other words, validated his apostolic ministry and the truth of the good news. It was in this way that God bore witness to the authority and the truth and the excellency of the gospel. There is nothing like raising the dead as an illustration of the scripture. It's not going to happen here, but it's a great illustration. And everyone who witnessed it was filled with wonder and admiration because it was a miracle. It was an illustration of the spiritual renewal by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the new birth, he raises us up from spiritual death and deep darkness. And so Paul was on his way to Jerusalem where he hoped to celebrate Pentecost. And Luke gives us this rather detailed itinerary of the places that they visited on the way. They stopped at Miletus, which was about 30 miles south of Ephesus, and wishing to bid farewell to the Ephesian elders, Paul asked them to come meet with him. Elsewhere, Luke has given us samples of Paul's preaching ministry to unbelievers, but here, what he does is provide us with an example of his ministry among believers. This is neither a missionary sermon, nor is it an apologetic address. It was delivered to Christians as a conscious, final, apostolic farewell. Paul says expressly in verse 38 that these elders would never see his face again, this side of heaven. 
And this was enough to fill their hearts with grief and their eyes with tears, as we read. These were men with whom and to whom Paul had ministered for years. Their friendship ran deep, and it had been cultivated over decades, so this was not an easy thing for any of them. We find here the Apostle's final legacy in his farewell to the Christian church, and I think we should consider at least four important elements of this particular address. First, Paul exonerates his own ministry and clears himself of any false accusations. You yourselves know how I lived among you, he said, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. You know something? Example is always better than precept, isn't it? Talk is cheap, but deeds are dear. To preach the gospel, quite honestly, is relatively easy. Any one of you could stand up here. Some could do it better than others. But anybody can preach. It's hard to practice the gospel. And Paul is an example worthy of imitation. I think he was a very godly man. And as an apostle, he was the target of many criticisms and slanders. He sometimes felt that he had to defend himself against any unjust allegations. God's faithful servants are often criticized for one reason or another. We know that. Those without the eye of faith can't see the power of God at work in a ministry. So it's no wonder that the world evaluates ministers on the basis of worldly standards. Paul was neither eloquent, nor was he impressive. His motives were often suspect, his doctrines were routinely criticized, and so it shouldn't surprise us that in his farewell speech he's trying to clear himself. He reflects on his ministry. He reminds them of his humility and his faithfulness. And he recounts the trials and the hardships, both his griefs and his sorrows, because his was not an easy ministry. I don't know what ministry is totally easy, but his was definitely not an easy ministry. And at one point, he describes it in 1 Corinthians 15 as fighting with beasts. Can you imagine? I'm sure some ministers in our day would echo Paul's sentiment. And I thank God that he's put me in a church with a wonderful congregation. Not beasts, by any stretch of the imagination. But as a minister of the gospel, Paul faithfully served the churches of Jesus Christ, and he tells us, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, visiting his families, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, those false teachers had advocated a hidden knowledge, secret doctrines, and only the elite, the spiritually elite, could receive and understand such ministries. But here we have the example of Paul. He didn't have any secrets. He openly proclaimed the gospel to anybody who would listen, both publicly and privately, declaring what was true and edifying to the church. And what's more, he'd shown no partiality. He preached to anybody and everybody alike, whether Jew or Gentile. They were all within the scope of his concern. So what he does here is exonerate his ministry. But then secondly, 
He estimates the situation in which he finds himself. He realized that his departure out of this world was drawing nigh. He was going to die. And so he was preparing them for his inevitable exodus from the earth. And on his way to Jerusalem with the collection for the saints, he gets reports about his suffering. I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what's going to happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city I visit that imprisonment and affliction await me. And so as he went from seaport to seaport, he heard these prophetic warnings. And the Holy Spirit was forewarning him so he could prepare for such trials. And I want you to note, please, how relatively insignificant he considered these impending ordeals. Did you see what he has to say? Or at least elsewhere he tells us. He says, and I quote, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, unqualified, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, here was an earnest man. And he's ready to forfeit freedom and life for Jesus Christ if necessary. And it seems as if he was consumed with promoting the gospel of Christ so that the effect of his zeal was a readiness to live or die for the Lord. Didn't matter to him. At one point, he even said this to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's how Paul estimated his situation. He was prepared for anything. He knew that his life and ministry were coming to an end. It was drawing to a close. He wanted to finish the race and to fight the good fight of faith. And he also knew that the Ephesian elders would not see him again in this world. So, like a faithful watchman, he warned them and didn't shrink back. I'm not sure how I would have responded. I hope I would have followed that example. I don't know. God gives us the grace at the time when we need it. But he was always eager to proclaim the whole counsel of God. And for that reason, nobody's blood could be laid at his feet or upon his head. Nobody. He had fulfilled his duty and the responsibility would now rest with the elders. So he exonerated his ministry. He estimated his situation. And third, he exhorted the Ephesian elders to be vigilant over the flock of God. Very important. He says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. And the basic thrust was for these Ephesians to remain faithful to their charge. Like good shepherds, they must day and night watch for the good of the sheep. Very rare in our day. Very rare. His exhortation applies to every elder who ever serves. Down the corridors of history, this echoes. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock. Paul was speaking to us through them. He's exhorting us to be faithful to our duty. In other words, officers, let all your care and study be for your own self and your flock's eternal welfare. 
Because you see, Paul had planted and it was time for others to come and water. I remember in Acts 13 where it says of David, he had served the purpose of God in his own generation. That's what we're called to do. Serve the purpose of God in our own generation. When it's our turn on the stage of history, but that comes to an end. We move off the stage of history and it's given to others. So here the weight of responsibility would shift to the officer's shoulders and they would bear the daily pressure of concern for all the churches. They have to follow Paul's example and be guardians of the flock and keepers of the soul. They must strive to be wise and faithful and dependable in the service of the church. And they must be careful and pay careful attention to these things for three reasons. First, they have to be careful because of the one who appointed them to this office, who is none other than the Holy Spirit. He says expressly in verse 28 that it was the Holy Spirit who made them overseers. And when God appoints you to a work, you better be true to the trust. Infidelity among men is bad. We know that. But infidelity toward God is much worse. The heinousness of that kind of sin is aggravated because of who he is. So pay careful attention because of the one who appointed you. Secondly, pay careful attention because of the price that was paid to redeem the sheep. It's tremendous. Look what he says. And I doubt there is a more striking verse in all of Scripture than this. Care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. We're going to consider that in more detail at another exposition, but let me just say at this point that nothing less than the blood of God was required to redeem the church. It implies, I think, at the very least, that the souls of God's people are of tremendous value. The infinitely precious blood of God incarnate was the ransom price to save them. And if he thought us worth that kind of price, then truly you and I must value the flock. Does not the church deserve our greatest pains and labors and exertions? If God was willing to make such a sacrifice, should we not spend and be spent for the church of Jesus Christ? Jesus at one point in his ministry said this, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? You take the whole world and all of its resources gathered into one. That's not valuable compared to a soul. Then you think about the whole church. So Paul says that we're to pay careful attention because of the one who appointed them and because of the price paid. And third, because of the dangers that threaten the flock, which requires them to be faithful. I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So Paul predicts here the grave and serious influence of these men who would arise to dissuade and to deceive the flock. Some of them would come from within the very church herself. 
You remember the parable that Jesus told about the devil sowing weeds among the wheat? As Satan sows hypocrites in the church, so the wolves arise among the sheep. They speak twisted things, untrue doctrines, perverse teachings, and because of their unsound and diabolical influence, many apparently are led astray. In fact, history proves, as we've seen before, the validity of this warning because wolves did arise, and today you'll find no church in Ephesus, none. You can't even find Ephesus. And I want you to notice Paul's exhortation demanded that the elders first watch out for themselves. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock. Because if leaders are deceived by error or overtaken by sin, they can't care for anybody else. To faithfully guard others, they must first guard themselves. It was Robert Murray McShane, one of the most noted Scottish preachers in the 19th century. This is what he said, and it still applies. McShane said, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. First and foremost, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. And every elder ought to take that to heart. The Apostle Paul echoed the concern when he mentioned this to Timothy. He says in 1 Timothy 4, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Church officers must persist in both personal piety and public ministry. I thank God for the elders and the deacons that God has given to this church. They're godly men. And I think their example is worthy of imitation. It's not so true in all churches. And insofar as the officers are faithful, will be instruments of salvation, according to Paul. As a matter of fact, all Christians must know how to conduct themselves in the household of God, but especially officers who lead. But then the last element of his address, after exonerating his ministry and estimating his situation and exhorting the elders, is to encourage those listening to him as he bids farewell. They could no longer count on the apostles' presence for guidance and counsel. As Jesus' departure troubled the disciples, so you can imagine Paul's departure troubled the elders. What a sore loss this was. They'd miss him. It's going to leave a huge hole in the early church. And knowing all of this, the Apostle Paul assures them of God's preservation. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. As a spiritual father, he commits the churches to the care and keeping of God, and they certainly need not be discouraged by his departure. They would not be left as orphans. The Lord would preserve them like precious jewels. The Holy Spirit is more than able to make up for the apostles' absence, and he does not and he will not fail us. He has infinite wisdom and almighty power. And I want you to notice how Paul commends them to the word of God's grace. Do you know something? To the wicked and unbelieving of this world, God is a consuming fire and an angry judge. 
That's true. But to believers, he is a gracious father and a compassionate friend. His own son laid down his life to purchase the elect for himself. And no wonder then God, Paul reminds them of the gospel of God's free grace. He paid that for you. That's where they would see the supreme demonstration of his love, the gospel of God's free grace, the cross of Jesus Christ, the greatest demonstration of true love the world has ever seen or ever will see. And the word of God reveals this. It's the means by which we're preserved. It's through that word that Christ builds us up in faith and love and assurance. And insofar as we embrace that word, he establishes our hearts in holiness. So he exonerates his ministry. He estimates his situation. He exhorts the elders and he encourages his listeners. That's his address. And I think what this does is three things. First, it's a good reminder of the importance of good godly elders. To no one else would Paul entrust the welfare of Christ's flock. He would do so only to elders who had been appointed by the Spirit, because great is the work of guarding, teaching, and nurturing souls for Christ. You parents know that. In the home, you guard and teach and nurture your children, eternal souls. Well, that's what elders do in the church. And the Lord takes seriously the work of elders. Consider this rebuke. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pastures, declares the Lord. Do you know what that is? That's what we call an eschatological woe. It's not just bad news. It's damnation. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. It's not a light thing, but it's a severe thing. The shepherds who fail to care for the flock will be forever damned. So the work of an elder is a serious responsibility. Those who would aspire to it, aspire to a noble task. And those men who already occupy the office must strive to improve. And from what Paul says here, there is no room for complacency in office. He demands of any leader both humility, diligence, and faithfulness. It requires the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and the blessing of Jesus Christ himself. And it also implies that those who elect elders, huge responsibility. When you cast your vote, that's huge. If savage wolves attack, they will often rise up in the midst of the church. So we're all called to be vigilant. From within, they can disseminate error, they can promote ungodliness, and God has given people, or God's people have been given the right to elect those who rule over them. That's why we always keep in mind the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And let me just say this, that they need our prayers. They do need our prayers. Humanly speaking, this church or any church will wax and wane with its elders. If they're weak, the church will be weak. If they're strong, the church will be strong. If they abdicate their authority and responsibility, nobody's going to be able to fill their role. People may try, but they'll not because they cannot fill those shoes. 
The church in that scenario is going to be characterized by absent leadership. That's all. A true elder is one who's appointed by God and called by the congregation. There to be shepherds living among the sheep and walking with them. Good, godly elders. Very important. Second, this reminds us of the importance of good, godly testimony. Paul's aim, you'll see, was to glorify God by serving Christ, edifying the church, and doing good. That was the whole thrust of his ministry and the flavor of his epistles. And he wanted nothing more than to be faithful to Christ and useful to the church. And then he says to you and me, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. His his example is worthy of imitation. He had a good testimony. And there is no greater legacy for you and I to leave behind than that kind of testimony. Do you know what it says in Proverbs 22? Very applicable to all of us sitting here. It says, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor is better than silver or gold. So a good name, it's not that which was sought by the builders of Babel. They started this grand tower in honor of their own supposed greatness. But a good name, a good name is built by godly living, by faithful service, by a good testimony. That's what Paul left behind, and that's what we should leave behind ourselves. Such is its value that its worth is more than great wealth or riches. Let me ask you parents one thing. Would you like to leave your children an inheritance? Would you like to leave a good name? Mark Van Junen and Derek Mantell can probably echo this and tell you the truth, that money alone cannot help your children. Is that right? Oftentimes, it does the opposite. Plenty of millionaires will leave their wealth to their offspring, and it ruins them. Proverbs 10, verse 7, the memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. What a blessing is the memory of a godly father or a godly mother. I don't care what their bank account says. How pleasant is the remembrance of pious saints who have already passed on. I think everybody here could remember a godly person who influenced him or her. Whether it be a parent or a friend, a teacher, a minister, or some benefactor, it has the similar impact of a sweet fragrance that fills the senses. How sweet is the memory of the righteous. But then third and finally, this reminds us of the importance of God's good word. Because Paul commended them to God in the word of his grace. The apostle thought it was essential that they be men of the sacred book. And such a focus, I think, is absolutely vital to our spiritual health and well-being. This book, this word, is our authority and our guide and our nourishment and a means of grace. In times of affliction and trial, it is the basis for our support and comfort. If you're not well-versed in this word, something may come tomorrow or this afternoon that's going to knock you flat. 
And you need this word the same as I do. Paul, or David says in Psalm 119, verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. He had the greatest pressures and the deepest trials and the severest afflictions, and he said it was the word. That's what soothed his spirit. That's what enlivened his soul, and that's what strengthened his faith. You're not going to find it in sports. You're not going to find it in education or science or philosophy or even relationships. You're not going to find it there. You're going to find it in the scriptures where God speaks peace to your soul. Because there we learn about the death of Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit. There we learn that the demands of justice were satisfied. There we learn that the Spirit is the guarantee of our redemption, and He dwells within our hearts. And it's there that we discover the promise of forgiveness through the blood of Jesus, the great pledge of the gospel. And you will never experience true joy until you have forgiveness of sins. When those four men lowered the paralyzed friend through the roof of that house, what did Jesus say? He said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. What? Be cheerful and paralyzed? Is that what he was saying? Yes. <laughs> because pardon of sin is the most important thing. No guilt, no penalty, no wrath, no eternal misery. The soul is free. It's in Scripture that we encounter that glorious promise. Isn't it a relief to know that death is not the end of our existence? We have some of our own members right on the brink. Death is a whisper away. And they're confident because of this. How marvelous is the guarantee of everlasting life to the believing soul. And there is no disappointment in this life that can subdue the hope of never-ending life. That's the kind of promise that revives the soul and the Bible is the place where we are taught that as saints, we enjoy God's fatherly care who will never leave us, never forsake us, who works everything together for good. So let the word of Christ dwell in us richly so that we can abound in hope. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing farewell speech of your servant, the Apostle Paul. We ask that the Spirit would help us to emulate and imitate his example, that you would encourage us to live lives that are worthy of imitation, and that when we're off the stage of history, our memory may be pleasant to those who remain. We ask this in Jesus' name. listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.